Hi everyone! This is your host Harmit, and you're listening to Tobin Talks. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Harmit, and today's episode will feature interdisciplinary research, my student well-being, and some really cool applications of drones. So make sure you stay tuned for all of that. First up, we have our research and tech reporter, Robert, interviewing Mario Pinto, who's the U of M Vice President Research and International Having an interdisciplinary approach to research has played a vital role throughout his life and career. Stay tuned as he tells us more. I'd like to know first a little bit about your time in Australia. Okay. If you could tell me about that. I think that's very interesting. It was very interesting because I was brought in to be the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research, but it was with the aim to construct a strategic research plan and bring the different disciplines together to do something special. COVID had just hit. At the same time, I was the Director of the Health and Knowledge Precinct, and so that was a particular challenge. So. We had 9.75 hectares of green space. We had a private hospital flanking that, a public hospital, and the university on the other side. So to bring the university researchers together with the hospital researchers and to bring in companies that could help with the translation in terms of regulatory affairs, licensing, things like that. So it was great because after the first two weeks of COVID, the Gold Coast turned out to be the safest place in the world. So it was easy for me to recruit international companies. Right. Right. So I was in the business of recruiting developers to put up buildings on the site, recruiting companies to populate and to set up viable relationships. So that was very exciting to actually achieve some of that. And when I left on the site, we had about 50 startup companies. And then we had these larger anchor tenants, mm-hmm. right, who were also collaborating with our researchers. So it was a, an attempt to move health innovations from the university and the hospital to the commercial sector. So when I left, we had seven clinical trials mm-hmm. underway yeah. on patients. This is serious stuff. So complex hip surgeries on children, and this is an example of where we bring together discipline bring together the engineers to 3D print the hips. We'd have digital twins of each patient, computer scientists and AI specialists. The surgeon would practice on the digital twin a certain intervention before going into the real operation. And these are very complex and, you know, these are interventions on a growing child. You have to try and avoid repeat surgeries. So when I left, we had completed clinical trials on 20 kids. Wow. It's unbelievable. And the good part about this program is that the need for repeat surgery is much lower, mm-hmm. if at all. Yeah. And so, and the trauma to the child, obviously, is lower. Yeah. So 
that's the kind of thing we were doing. Another one was removal of aneurysms and stroke victims. Each aneurysm is different. So again, we would image, we would 3D print the aneurysm, and then we would have expert surgeons go in and remove the aneurysm after practicing on the digital twin. Do you think that could possibly be applied to cancer, for example, or something similar? To vascular disease in general, yes. Yeah, you're really pushing the limit. It's, in principle, if you bring disciplines together, you can do this far out stuff, but it's a matter of having the experts in the different disciplines and having them all play in the same sandbox. Yeah. Research is sort of a universal enterprise. That's why you can go to any other country and the problems are very similar and you have tremendous international collaboration. There are, however, nuances, right? So in particular in Canada and in Australia, Incorporation of traditional ways of knowing and just traditional experience, cultural experience, is now has now come to the fore to try to incorporate all of that into traditional ways of education, mm-hmm. right? Right. Would you say that international collaboration brings a lot of the same benefits as interdisciplinary collaboration? Absolutely. It's the same principle. They're very different perspectives. People have been trained differently. They're exposed to different cultural norms. Right. Right? And what drives them is very different. And they ask very different questions. So one can learn a lot from that. So I ran a a similar interdisciplinary major project at Simon Fraser University. One of the leading areas was called cultural evolution. To ask the question, you know, how does culture evolve? And for that, we brought together an amazing team, anthropologists, archaeologists, evolutionary biologists, psychologists, computational linguists, historians, economists, and indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. That was the dynamite combination, right? To set out a whole new field. There are currently only three major universities in this area. So there's an example where bringing together disciplines created a niche that is unique in Canada. So what was your educational background? I have to back up before that. So I come from a family where my entire mother's side were in the arts and literature and music. So one started the Shakespearean Society, one started the Music Society, and I grew up in Sri Lanka. Uh, One was a poet who went to London, England, and started Poetry London. Others were also writing. My great-grandfather had a printing press, one of the first in the country. Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka okay. And they also, he was also a playwright, so they'd put on, they would write plays, they would put on shows. That was my mother's side. My father's side were all scientists. So my great-grandfather was an apothecary. My grandfather was also an apothecary and taught the medical students in university. My dad was a forensic and I'm a fourth-generation chemist. But I was straddling both. I maintained both interests, arts and science, till second year undergraduate, when I had to make a tough choice. But, but I started off in math and computing, then I switched to life sciences, then I switched to biochemistry, then to chemistry, and finally I graduated with chemistry. So after my PhD at Queen's University, but I also worked at the University of Toronto and Dalhousie University in Halifax, with different supervisors. So again, I started mixing expertise. 
they each had a different specialty. And that's how I put my thesis together. I then went to Paris for a postdoctoral fellowship with Nobel Prize winner, and I changed completely my field to organic synthesis. And I came back to Canada at Ottawa, I changed completely my field to immunology. And then I started my independent career and I tried to bring it all together. It's been a constant evolution as we, you know, explored new fields that we needed to address a problem. So my group was interdisciplinary from the get-go. It was international from the get-go. And we were always answering, addressing problems using an interdisciplinary approach. We didn't care what tools we had to use, whether it was immunology or electrochemistry or computer modeling. We did it all. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you have any last words of like advice or anything on this topic that you want to say? I mean, in terms of students, for example, I would say follow your passion. If you're not passionate about something, don't do it. There's too much to do in this world. Yeah. Find out what your passion is and follow that passion. Mm-hmm. Don't settle something that's just a job. And for research, and our faculty can work together. Get the best input from different perspectives because that will make a much richer research program. You'll be able to address far more complex questions and have greater impact. The confluence of the arts and sciences because that's where you can make real strides. This artificial separation is not productive. If you look at the best way forward, it's looking at a holistic view. Indigenous peoples knew this a long time ago. Yeah. Right? Overall, that's the driving force. But if we can get, if we can achieve that, a change of culture that will be good. Next up, we have news reporter Alicia interviewing Tyler Fell, who's the CEO and founder of My Student Wellbeing. This is an online platform that can help U of M students access private mental health therapists. Here to tell us more, Tyler Phil. So MySteel Wellbeing is an online platform designed to connect post-secondary students in Canada. Uh, as of right now, we're just operating in Manitoba to private mental health therapists. And it was built around the concept of making it really easy for students to use their student insurance plans. So for the case of University of Manitoba students, a lot of students are opted into the UMSU Health and Dental Plan. And that has really good mental health care coverage. So students can visit our website, which is bystudentwellbeing.ca, and they can do a few different things on it. One is that they can get their insurance checked. So if a student is uncertain if they have the UMSU Health and Dental Plan, they can fill out a form and we can go into the insurance system and actually check that they have this $1,250 in coverage for mental health services. Students can also check that in their Aurora accounts, but it can be confusing about, you know, what is this insurance plan or what is this UMSU health and dental plan? So we'll help students understand that. And then students can browse our clinician directory. So it's the directory of therapists that we have. 
who are actively taking bookings or going live soon so students can browse the different profiles of the therapists we have to pick the one that they want to work with. And they can also book a free 10-minute consult call with them, with the therapist. So if a student doesn't want to try a full session yet and they want to see if the therapist is the right fit, they can do a free 10-minute call to see if there's a good connection there. And then students can book a full session and it's all virtual, it's all online, online counseling, the paperwork's online. And if students want, they can ask us to directly bill their insurance plan. So instead of them paying with a credit card or something, them getting a receipt, them taking that receipt to the insurance company and the insurance company sending them their money, they can just fill out a form for us. It says, my student well-being can go ahead and bill my insurance directly. And then after every session, we'll automatically bill the student's insurance so they don't have to worry about that whole receipt process, getting to do that. And we also have a transparent calendar. So a student can jump on our website today. They don't need to make an account first to see, to see availability. They can see today exactly when we have therapists available, and they can book with that therapist at the time that works best for them. And right now, we have therapists available within 24 hours. And my intent is to always have therapists available within 24 hours. What made you decide to like start My Student Wellbeing? So my background is in social work. And I worked frontline social services for about five years before I decided to start my master's in business administration. And I loved frontline work. You know, I provided counseling to clients myself. And I loved the work and I loved seeing people grow and improve and change their lives in that way. But I wanted to impact organizations in a, in a larger way. So when I was working frontline, there was, you know, concerns about staff burnout. There was conflict in the workplace. So I wanted to get into a leadership role in some organization um, where I can make a larger systemic change. And then that would impact the frontline staff, make their jobs easier, make them happier to go to work each day. And that would provide better client care. So it'd be like this trickle-down benefit. So I started my MBA in 2017 with the idea that I would go and work for a social service organization eventually. But then I had classmates, friends, people really close to me who would be struggling with their mental health and they didn't know where to go. Sometimes, you know, they would try and go to the campus counseling center and it's a great resource, but sometimes it could be overloaded. There could be wait times or some students just don't want to go to it. You know, unfortunately, there's still a bit of a stigma behind reaching out for help. And I'm working towards trying to address that and improve that. So I saw that people were not getting timely help or they didn't know where to go to get timely help. And as a student myself, I looked at my insurance coverage and I saw that I had mental health coverage and I didn't know much about it. If I wasn't just curious one day and looked into it, I probably would never have known that I had this coverage. I just paid the fee and my tuition and never really thought about it. You know, the dental was good, um, but I just wasn't really using the insurance plan. So I looked into it and I saw, okay, there's this coverage here that the people that I was close to didn't know about. 
and there's a need for more accessible mental health services and timely mental health services. So the idea came to me of, you know, could I do something with this? Could I try and solve this, this gap in the system? That was 2017. So I first had the idea then. And I started to kind of think about it, but didn't put a lot of time into really trying to push it forward because it's a big step to actually try and start an organization. And then as I started working through my MBA, I started to learn more about business and I felt confident that I could actually start something. And before the pandemic hit, I said, you know what, I'm going to try and do this. I'm going to go look for office space around the university. I'm going to rent a physical office space and try to start this business. And then the pandemic hit just before I did that. Um, and made everything go online. So then I was like, is there a way to create a, like a counseling practice, a therapy practice, where students can use their insurance plan. And I spent the pandemic building out my website, learning web development, figuring out the different business models to try and make this work. Also, is this like only part of like students who are part of like the school insurance? No. So anybody can technically book with a therapist on the platform. With the insurance plan, so the Umsu Health and Dental Plan, how we add extra value to that is we know what a student has in coverage. So for students who have it, I know that they have $1,250 in coverage. I know that it's covered at 100% of every session. I also know that they're with Manitoba Blue Cross. That allows me to get the therapist set up to directly build the insurance plans. So for students who have that plan, we can bill automatically. Students don't have to worry about that. We know that they have the 1250 and coverage. We can let students know they're coming close to that 1250. So once they spend, say, $1,000, we can let them know and say, hey, you have $250 left. You may want to think about what you want to do afterwards. So can you afford to keep paying? Do we need to find you another service that is free? Um, you know, what's the transition plan there? But it's really good coverage and I can give anywhere from eight to 15 sessions with our therapists, because our therapists range right now from $80 to $125. But a student who opts out of the plan can still come on the website. They can still book with a therapist. We just can't help that student understand what their coverage is, because we don't have access to their coverage documents. So I'm not going to know that they have $500 in coverage or $800. And then also, depending with the insurer, we might not be able to offer direct billing. So the student would have to pay with a credit card and then we would submit a receipt and the student would take the receipt and go through the insurance reimbursement process. So we just make it a lot easier for students who have the UMSU Health and Dental, but it's not specifically for students who have the UMSU Health and Dental. So like where can students or people interested find more information about My Student Wellbeing? So the main place to go would be the My Student Wellbeing website, which is mystudentwellbeing.ca. We also have our Instagram, which is at mystudentwellbeing. Reach out for any questions. We try and respond to emails within 24 hours. 
And then also we have a little hiring tab at the bottom of the website. So students can also check that out if we're hiring for a position. And yeah, I would encourage any students to reach out or if there's a student group that is interested in trying to collaborate and try and find a way to improve student mental health. Love to hear from anybody. At the end of the day, I think we're all trying to improve our lives, our peers' lives, our friends' lives, just those around us, trying to improve their lives in whatever way we can. To end off the episode, we have research and tech editor Ella speaking with U of M Associate Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, Philip Ferguson, about some of the projects he's currently directing at the Star Lab. My, my research really tries to make uh, aerospace systems accessible to researchers and communities. So my, my experience working in the aerospace industry has sort of told me that um, while other industries around us, like the automotive industry and the consumer electronics industry, while they all seem to be adopting new technologies like additive manufacturing or 3D printing and machine learning and big data management, the aerospace industry seems to be kind of lagging a little mm -hmm. bit. And so my research is trying to sort of kick the aerospace industry in the pants and say, hey, why don't we start adopting new technology, taking on a little bit of risk, but taking that risk on in smart and intelligent ways. And that should allow us to bring intelligent satellite systems and drone systems to communities in the Arctic and to research groups uh, here at the University of Manitoba and really around the world that could really stand to benefit from aerospace systems. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's really what our research does as a whole. Now, we have lots of different uh, research projects that we do under that umbrella, mm -hmm. but, our, but our main drive is to try to make space and aerospace accessible accessible to people so that it you don't have to spend millions of dollars on systems. You can do it for a few tens of thousands mm -hmm. and you can get these benefits. Um, and could you tell me about um, your UM Star Lab? Sure. So uh, the UM Star Lab, that's the University of Manitoba Space Technology and Advanced Research Laboratory. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the laboratory that my students work in. We have several different uh, arms of that lab. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a lab here at the University of Manitoba campus mm -hmm. where we develop uh, rover systems where we're trying to understand how new next generation Mars rovers or lunar rovers uh, can better navigate those planets mm -hmm. to explore different areas for possible human habitation. Mm -hmm. We also have a small drone test area in there where we test new drone systems and drones behave like satellites. And so we can use that test bed mm -hmm. to test new satellite control systems. Mm -hmm. We have some electronics workbenches there where we develop uh, new uh, avionics systems or sensor systems for drones and rovers. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's the that's the sort of the the Star Lab that's right here on campus, but an arm of Star Lab is also located at the at uh, Magellan Aerospace, and so inside Magellan Aerospace is a very large clean room for building satellites. It's called the Advanced Satellite Integration Facility, 
And that's a facility that's co-owned by the University of Manitoba and Magellan Aerospace. And that's where we develop a lot of our, what we call our flight systems. So the systems that are actually going to go into space, they get assembled and tested in a clean environment. We have facilities there where we can do vibration testing or thermal vacuum testing, where we simulate the environment that that a spacecraft goes through to get to space. So the launch vibrations and the vacuum and cold and hot temperatures of space. We can simulate and emulate all of that at the uh, ASIF, this uh, this big clean room, and it allows our students to have access to world-class space systems and aerospace engineers at Magellan. These students train there. Uh, they learn skills like soldering and space systems assembly, integration, and tests. And, uh, and ultimately, many of these students end up taking on full-time jobs at Magellan Aerospace when they're done. Wow, okay, that's that's really cool. Um, So um, for the spacecraft that you're working on, is it mainly drones or what other type of um, machinery are you working on? Yeah, so right now we are uh, just in the final stages of putting together a CubeSat. Uh, a CubeSat is a small satellite made of little cubes about the size of a Rubik's Cube. And so our satellite is known as a 3U satellite, which means it's three Rubik's Cubes stacked on top of each other. So our satellite is about the size of a milk carton. And uh, what it's doing is it's trying to understand how space rocks, or so a chunk of Earth from, uh, well, a chunk of rock, I guess I should say, from the moon or from an asteroid, how do those rocks change as they get exposed to space radiation? This is an interesting question because right now there's a NASA satellite that's on its way back to Earth from uh, an asteroid. It, it visited an asteroid, it went and it scooped up some of those rocks from the asteroid, and it's bringing them all the way back to Earth. And on that trip back to Earth, they're being exposed to space radiation. Mm-hmm. And so we have this question saying, well, what is that radiation doing to those rocks? in the time that it takes them to go from the asteroid back to Earth. And so what our CubeSat is going to do is we're sending some space rocks back into space again. We're taking some little micrometeoroids that crashed to the Earth. We're taking a little bits of the moon that the Apollo astronauts uh, harvested when they went back there in the, in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. And we're sending them back up into space. We have cameras that's going to be taking pictures of them uh, several times a day. And we're going to watch how space radiation changes those, those, uh, those samples. Wow. So that's what our first satellite is doing. We're planning on building a second satellite mm-hmm. in collaboration with Inuit communities mm-hmm. in uh, Nunavut and uh, and indigenous and Inuit communities in uh, Churchill, Manitoba as well. And uh, our next satellite is going to try to understand the impacts of climate change on a warming Arctic. Mm-hmm. So the, the Inuit uh, communities uh, rely on the ice uh, for their... Uh, for, for much of their year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use the ice for transportation. They use the ice to go hunting on. But more and more, we're starting to see that this ice is becoming less and less safe mm-hmm. for them to walk on. And uh, trying to understand this ice safety and the mechanisms through which that ice forms in the mm-hmm. wintertime and breaks up again in the spring and summer. Those are interesting challenges and they're difficult challenges. And so what we're doing is we're designing, we're in the very early stages now, but of designing a new CubeSat that would have a small sensor on it that could measure ice quality and provide that directly to Inuit communities uh, in northern Canada so that they can use that as part of their uh, network of data systems that they use to understand the ice 
and the environment around them. Oh, oh no, that's that's really really cool. Is the CubeSat here on campus? Well, the CubeSat right now, the one that will be flying in space is at the ASIF. It's in the clean room at Magellan okay. right now. Uh, but we have what we call our engineering model CubeSet. Mm-hmm. We have different parts of our CubeSet are mm-hmm. in my lab here on campus. Uh, that's what our software team uses to develop new software systems. That's where we do a lot of our debugging of some of the electrical systems. But the one that's actually going to fly into space is sitting on a bench at uh, Magellan Aerospace right uh, now. Okay, I saw that you recently recently received funding for a new facility called the Drone Dome from Prairie, Canada. Could you tell me a bit about that? Sure, yeah. So that's actually called, I know it's a little bit confusing. Mm-hmm. This one is called Drone Zone. Yeah, okay. Uh, and so, so the Drone Zone is a precursor to what I hope to be Drone Dome in okay. the future. But so what we just received funding for from Prairies Can is a warehouse facility near the airport that is going to be one of the world's largest uh, indoor motion tracking systems for robotics. And what this facility is going to allow us to do, and we're just, we're just assembling it right now, mm-hmm. is, uh, it will, it will allow us to test and verify new drone control systems mm-hmm. in the safety of a building. And, and this is important because one of the challenges that we face as drone researchers or aerospace researchers is that we have lots of ideas on how we want to design new drones or new sensors. Mm-hmm. But of course, when we go to fly those drones, we fly them outside and we share the airspace with aircraft that have people on them. And so that that's that's challenging and that's sometimes dangerous. And so Transport Canada tries to regulate that for good reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as a result, it tends to slow that process. So Drone Zone is an area where we can fly these drones inside, develop these systems, test these systems, verify that these systems work, mm-hmm. and then we can apply to Transport Canada after we've worked out some of the kinks and then we can do final trials outside. But this is going to open up the door to a whole new era of drone technology. We're talking about drones now for agriculture or drones Mm -hmm. for inspecting bridges or cellular towers. Mm -hmm. There's researchers here at the University of Manitoba that are looking at using drones as temporary cellular infrastructure for areas that are either very remote and they need to deliver data to them or areas maybe that have had just recently had a... um, a natural disaster where it's knocked out some of the cellular infrastructure. Uh, we're looking at using drones uh, in space, right? So we, we heard about uh, the Perseverance uh, rover and its little Ingenuity helicopter. Well, we're looking at doing more of that, right? So how can drones and rovers and spacecraft work together to explore new planets? We're going to be doing some of the re- some of that research in there. And we also have other researchers from civil engineering. I mentioned already the researchers that are looking into bridge inspection. But there are others like Dr. Uh, Gershans Gusen even uh, who's doing some work on uh, using drones and robotics and uh, augmented reality systems so that construction workers and uh, project managers can understand the status of buildings while they're being built. So how, what percentage of this building has drywall or how many windows have been installed? And so th- these are these are important uh, metrics that people need to understand while buildings are being built. And so we're exploring ways in which drones can autonomously fly through new skyscraper, skyscrapers to understand uh, the building progress. So th- there's really no end of applications mm-hmm. of drones in our society right mm-hmm. now. And so we're absolutely thrilled and excited to be developing some of those technologies at Drone Zone.
Just a reminder that if you ever have any suggestions or feedback for people who you'd like to see on the podcast, if you'd like to be on the podcast, if you want to send in any of your poetry, short stories, any of those types of things, please email me at audio at themanitoban.com. You can find Tobin Talks Thursdays at 1130 on 101.5 FM radio, which is UMFM radio, and you can listen to us anytime on all of your podcast streaming services, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's it for today, and we'll see you on the next episode of Tobin Talks.